Hello and welcome to Against the Law, the myth-busting ancient history podcast. We like to make sure that we're separating historical fact from fiction. If we stumble across an inaccuracy, you'll hear this noise. That's the gavel of our historical justice smashing down on porky pies about the past. So, fingers crossed, let's hope we can identify some misconceptions about ancient history today. Quick warning for you, we are chatting about some mildly PG things today, so look over your shoulder for younger ears that might be listening and while you're there, throw a pinch of salt over. Who will be the first to rise from our table of podcast guests? Fortunately, we've only got five. We have our lucky four-leaf clover Xenia, our fan of all things ancient Rome. Next up, we've got Meg, our lucky Trojan horseshoe. She knows all about ancient Greece. Find a Barney, pick him up, and all that day you'll have good luck. And also an improved understanding of the ancient Near East. And we are delighted to be joined by our lucky charm, author of the Roman mystery series, Caroline Lawrence. Caroline's brought her own sound effects today with the use of an apotropaic alarm. You may remember that an apotropaic item is one which has the power to ward off evil and bad luck. Listen out for the sound of an apotropaic cowbell. I'm Flo, wearing my lucky underpants for today's episode, all about, you guessed it, superstitions. I don't know much about ancient history, but touch wood, I'll be learning things along with you, our listener. So today I have some fun words, three fun words, and those three words are, the first one is extra mission, the second one is fascinator or fascinate, and the third one is mormalukion. The one thing I'm telling all my students and stuff is that their mindset was different from ours and they believed in a world full of gods and demigods, just crammed with little gods everywhere and big gods. And I just came across, this is from a tractate from the Babylonian Talmud, which is written around the time that we're talking about. And this one rabbi went to a graveyard and using his supernatural skills, he determined that 99 people of the 99 of the dead people in that graveyard had died of the evil eye and only one had died of natural causes. Wow. (laughs) So, So what is the evil eye? Well, the theory of extra mission explains what the evil eye is. Philosophers in ancient Greek and Roman times, as you know, explain not just philosophy about how to live, but how the universe worked. And they have this theory that when you see something, the way you see something is little particles of fire come out of your eye and touch that thing. And that's how you see it. So just imagine Superman and his laser vision, right? Imagine everybody in the ancient world has laser vision. Mm -hmm. So because of this theory that the eyes throw out these little beams that can touch you, if someone looks at you with envy or jealousy, for some reason, we're not sure how they let in the influence of an evil spirit or a demon or some evil, and it can make you sick. And especially children are super, super vulnerable to this. So there's so much in the Greco-Roman world. And I guess you could even say, you know, the Semitic world of that period, the 500 years before and 500 years after the birth of Christ, that is all about just protecting yourself against these evil influences. This is the other thing. We It's very powerful. The sight is very powerful. So there are many things to visually reflect back. Apotropaic <laughs> means to turn away, to turn away the evil eye, reflect it back. But there are also things you can do um, apart from sight. For example, sounds like my bell, which would distract the demon. And um, also reciting Homeric verses was apparently apotropaic. You know, you could just recite a verse from Homer and the demon would get distracted. Oh, wow. So you're super safe, Meg. (laughs) I 
<laughs> I have some great stories about what exactly Homeric verses can do for you, superstition-wise. <laughs> you want to throw one in? So did you know um, that if you want to not get pregnant in the ancient world, if you want to use contraception, you can use Homer. Um, you can have an uh, sort of like tiny little tablet with a Homeric verse written on it. And the Homeric verse is, as you would expect, about uh, not having children. So it says you should have been without offspring. Um, and it's just a verse from Homer. But uh, yeah, you write it on a tablet and then you tie it with the hair of a mule and then you can carry that and that will stop you from getting pregnant. There's power in the written word. There's this kind of, there's something really powerful about something written or said in verse that, that mm. we don't really understand today, do we? Yeah, exactly. And they, I mean, Homeric verses were used for all sorts of things. If, you, if you're if you a runaway slave and you want to not be found by whoever's looking for you, you can have a Homeric verse that will work um, to do that for you. Or you can use Homeric verses as a kind of counter curse. If, if you think someone else might have enchanted you or done a, um, a binding spell on you or something, you can use Homeric verses to kind of warn against other people's curses, which is really cool. And that, I guess, is the origin of charms and spells and things, isn't it? It's saying a kind of a formulaic um, phrase or or even um, something we might say is nonsense, which may turn out to actually have a meaning. And one more set fun sound that is apotropic are wind chimes, which again distract the demon. And um, there's some wonderful wind chimes in room 69 of the British Museum, which has a giant phallus, winged phallus, um, which we'll come back to later. <laughs> um, with little bells on it, and that has multiple aspects of being apotropaic. <laughs> There's going to be no demons anywhere near this podcast. <laughs> um, I was going to say that for today's episode, since it's the last in our second series, um, I've adopted a slightly different approach. Uh, so whereas normally we might be telling little anecdotes, little bits of history and stuff like that, today for me is going to be a lot of primary sources because I've just been scouring everything from ancient Mesopotamia in terms of omens, incantations, uh, material about divination, to try and find little texts or utterances that might be relevant to the things that we talk about. So we could play a little game. So I'm just going to sprinkle those in as we go. I can't wait. I'm really looking forward to it. OK, well, should we, should we do an easy one to start off with then? Yes. Yes. OK, fine. So this is from a Babylonian uh, omen series called Shuma Alu, which has hundreds and hundreds of separate omens. It's a number of tablets, um, each with just very iterative omens. So they say, if X happens, then Y will happen. And we've spoken about this uh, quite a few times. Uh, Babylonians really enjoyed that formula called the casuistic formula. So I'll ask <laughs> if a ghost cries out and someone hears it, what do you think will happen? They'll go deaf. Okay. They'll get possessed by the ghost. Okay. They'll die within a week. Yeah, that's a straightforward one. So yeah, if a ghost cries out and someone hears it, the house will be abandoned and the person will die. Oh, that's harsh. No, but how do you know it was ghost though? Well, also it begs the question, what if a ghost cries out and someone doesn't hear it? <laughs> I've got a nice smell. Um, can any of you think of any smells that are apotropaic? Because we're using all five senses, though, of course, visual is like 80% of apotropaic. But there are some smells you can put on to keep away the demons. Anybody got some of those? Sage is used. You burn sage, don't you? That's a more modern thing, I think. You burn sage to cleanse a home. Yeah, yeah, that could be used. Again, I feel like this is maybe modern, but what about, is it is it garlic that gets rid of vampires? Garlic? 
Very good one. Very good one. In the apocryphal book of Tobit, um, uh, he has to keep away a demon who likes to ruin this beautiful girl's wedding night by killing her new bridegroom. And he's like bridegroom number six. And he decides he would actually like to not die. So um, an angel tells him to burn fish gall. So that kind of bitter gall and inner organ of a fish and has a really horrible stench. And that keeps away the demon. And apparently this is really good. There is apotropaic farting. <laughs> you can actually <laughs> fart and the smell and <laughs> demons also demons are a bit like kids they like rude and silly and kind of you know slightly obscene funny things so you can distract a demon with a fart <laughs> my That's... husband is going to be thrilled to find that out <laughs> he's going to be i'm just going to bless this house bear with me one second <laughs> So that brings us to my second word, fascinate. Now, you've all heard of a fascinator, haven't you? Those little hats, you know, that women wear to Ascot and stuff. The word fascinate comes from fascinum, which the Latin dictionary, um, Sonia might know this, one of the meanings is the membrum virile, because tiny penises were hung around the necks of children as preventions against witchcraft. And again, in room 69 of the British Museum, in the same case with the phallic wind chime, you can see teeny tiny little silver penises that they hung around a baby's neck. Because again, demons, there's a ton of symbolism in the penis that we don't really all get. But it's funny, it's rude, it's also a symbol of power and fertility. But um Again, demons are like kids and they get like go away giggling, you know, so they won't hurt you. And the word fascinate, again, I said you can't kill a demon. You can just distract it or repel it. The word, it comes from the Greek word baskanon, which is also a word for an evil eye. So it's it's just all linked up together. So the next time you use the word fascinate, just remember what the root of that word is. <laughs> so, um my final word, and then we can have lots of fun. You guys can just throw in the word Mormalukian. Um, most classicists ask them what a Mormalukian is, and they will not have a clue. And um, it's actually a word that appears in Plato, in Socrates's um, uh, the Phaedo, which is, of course, the dialogue that chronicles the last hours of Socrates. And he talks about a Mormalukian. And I came across it because I'm doing a translation of Aesop's fables. And translating Aesop, I came across a fable, one of the earliest fables, called The Fox and the Mormalukion. And it goes like this. One day, a fox wandered into a sculptor's workshop, and she came across, she was examining each of the objects. Foxes are always female in Aesop, I love that. She came across a tra tragic mask and lifted it up and said, this head is empty. There's nothing behind it. And the moral of the story is that some people look imposing, but they're in body, but they're inconsequential in spirit. And I realized that a tragic mask, another name for it can be a Mormalukion. And the way Socrates uses it is he talks about it being a bogeyman, something to scare children. I've often wondered, um, you know, the like the Gorgonaeon, the face of Medusa that that can turn you to stone and that Med Athena wears on her aegis and stuff and Achilles has one on his sometimes. It reflects back evil. And final thing I'll say, Aesop was so ugly that a slave dealer didn't want to buy him. And Aesop says, wait, I can be a Mormalukian. I can frighten the children 
into behaving well, and I can protect you against evil. So here's, this is what they call the scary tragic masks, and you'll start seeing them everywhere now. That's quite sad, isn't it? I'm so ugly, I can be apotropaic for you. (laughs) It's interesting that you brought up those masks and the Gorgon face, actually, Caroline, because there's an interesting precedent from the ancient Near East um, in the mask of the giant uh, Humbaba, who was the guardian of the cedar forest in the Epic of Gilgamesh. And uh, throughout Mesopotamian history, um, they used little clay small masks of the type you describe not 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 for use of, over your face just a design uh, as an apotropaic item of the face of this of this monster this uh humbaba giant and and it is it's it's very similar to the gorgons that you describe often you see um sort of coils all over his face uh, like intestines and i think they were used in um in in the reading of entrails as well to say if the entrails of an animal looks like the face of humbaba then it means something um but i think there may be a link between the the face of the gorgon and the face of humbaba fascinating and the even the word prosopon prosopon which means mask actually means something that you look upon um pros towards an ops eye and there's a whole fascinating article on the uh, neurology of the the greek mask and how it's blank, or it may, it may have some expression, but you can tip it to get the light in different shadows and different angles. And also we project onto the mask because it's not detailed, we can project our own emotions. So there's this whole idea of reciprocal sight with masks and with uh, faces. It's just fascinating, so complicated. If you think about predators and prey, predators always have the eyes facing straight forward, don't they? Think of a tiger, a leopard, a lion, a wolf, a dog. To look directly at somebody, have someone look directly at you is like the predator spotting you. I guess that idea of reciprocity is really interesting as well, because that's the kind of, it's, I guess, not a contradiction, but an interesting thing about all these apotropaic objects is, say, you know, the gorgons, you can have an image of a gorgon head, and that's apotropaic, despite the fact, you know, they thought they were horrible. That's that's kind of the point, that they're these horrible faces looking out, and they protect you from other horrible things. So yes. There's like that weird sense of sort of, and the evil eye, you know, someone can look at you with an evil eye, and the way you ward that off is by having your own evil eye to look back at them, it's like those, the blue and white eyes that we were talking about before. Amulets um, are often called an evil eye. So the thing against the evil eye is called an evil eye, but the thing that hurts you is also called the evil eye. There's just thousands of amulets. I'm sure Barney has lots of amulets too, but... I assume you mean Barney has stories of amulets rather than he has... (laughs) (laughs) I mean, facts at his fingertips. Have you got any more fun facts for us? Well, you mentioned the eyes facing forward on a predator and that being threatening. So I'll bite, if you like, and give you an omen about snakes. Right. So one thing that you should know is that in these omens, a lot of them are concerned with animals falling onto you. I don't know why. Um, I guess if they're up in a tree on a wall or something like that. But snakes and lizards, they're falling all over the place. So if a snake (laughs) falls between a man and a woman and escapes, what will happen to them? Uh, Their love will run away. They'll divorce. I don't know. That's spot on. First try. That's wonderful. Yeah. So if a snake falls between a man and a woman and escapes, they will divorce and unfortunately also die. (laughs) (laughs) Do you feel like these predictions of death, though? I mean, they're quite like inevitable anyway. Yeah. It's like the foolproof prediction, isn't it? I just like the idea that there was someone like a sort of a a magician peddling these omens and he's just they're like, it's literally always death. And he's going, yeah, believe it or not, death, like whatever happens, it's death. So there's not much you can do. 
There are rituals to get rid of these, though. I know death comes up in a lot of them, but there are sort of counter rituals, basically, like prophylactic rituals. Um, so if you know that a negative omen has has occurred uh, in your general direction, you can then go and perform a Namburbi ritual, uh, which is to counteract the, the negative effects of the omen. Oh, did you just say prophylactic, Barney? <laughs> yes. Did someone say prophylactic? Would you like to know where that word comes from? Yes, I'm wondering now if yeah. we should have a prophylactic ping theme. <laughs> <laughs> um, so a phulax is a guard in Greek. Um, so if you're a phulax with it, you're, you're a guard against something. So that's where we get that. And like, it's yeah, not, not, not just a guard in the sense that we're talking here, like a literal someone standing guard is a phulax, which I think is very interesting with the, the way we use that term now. It's like there's someone sort of guarding against the diseases or whatever. Yeah, so you're guarding before it can hurt you, the prophylactic before. Yeah. And I think that these houses must have been death traps because presumably they had maybe thatch or wattle and daub ceilings that animals, critters could live in, you know, and just fall down occasionally. But there's also a proverb in the Bible that a man who puts his hand, digs into a wall could find a snake. I mean, what's a snake doing in the wall? That's not good, is it? <laughs> that sounds very Babylonian to me. Mm. Mm. I didn't talk about actions that you can do to keep away the evil eye. Oh, and yes, the sign against evil. First of all, you can spit. And apparently there's something really powerful about spitting. But don't ask me why. Pliny, Pliny will tell you about that. Yeah, that's quite common in Eastern European cultures as well. I grew up in Poland and um, there's a lot of that going on. Um, but the sign against evil, you've got... You've got the palm forward, and there's in Hebrew um, legend, there's tons about the number five is really powerful. So, um, and something about the palm forward and the five, I don't know quite, maybe Barney knows more about that. But of course, the manus ficus, the fig hand, is considered very rude. And if you, you know, the thing your granddad does, he pretends to take your nose between his forefinger and his middle finger, and he gets his thumb between there. You know? Yeah, yeah. Mm. Yeah. So it's the thumb sticks between the first and the middle finger. And it actually, kids don't try this at home, but it looks like the female um, genitalia. And that is a sign against evil because, once again, demons are very, very um, juvenile and they will laugh at silly, rude things like that. So is the open palm related to the Hamsa hand? Yes, yes, well done. Again, Hamsa, the five fingers, um, and that's very common in the Middle East. Yeah, absolutely. That is their number five as well. Is oh, it? Oh. Yeah, it means five. So the crossroads are important because you get um, herms at crossroads or hermi at crossroads as well, don't you? Which are the, again, penis related, um, the kind of blocks of stone sculpture. Exactly, because... Yeah. Any um, threshold, any um, place where one world meets another is very powerful. And, and we know that because the thresholds of Pompeian houses and Babylonian houses um, often have things at them or buried under them because it's like the aperture that can let in the evil. You want to guard it at the doorway. And a crossroads is considered a kind of threshold because it's where two roads meet or three roads meet. So, yes, you'll often get these herms at the crossroad, these um, square pillars um, with the erect phallus on it and then the head of often Hermes, but it can be another god or something. And you would maybe anoint it with oil or pat it, stroke its beard, put a garland on it, um, just touch it as you passed for a little bit of protection. I was just going to say, I think there's an overlap there with, um, not with not with penises, but with the, in the Jewish faith, I think sometimes in doorways you can find 
uh, little inscriptions in Hebrew in doorways of Jewish homes. Oh, yeah, absolutely. The um, mezuzah, I think it's called. Yeah, it's a mezuzah, yeah. Um, We mentioned amulets earlier. Would you guys like to hear about an amulet that can stop you getting a migraine? Yes. (laughs) Yes, please. That would be great for me. Yeah, I thought you might personally want this one, Flo, because I know I know you are a fellow sufferer. Um, so this is there's there's actually a migraine demon. Um, this is not Greek, I think, Barney. I don't know if you know anything about this migraine demon, um, but she's from sort of Near Eastern mythology and Eastern European folklore, and her name is Antaura. And I think she's related to a different demon called Abizu. But I came across her because there's a Greek um, inscription on an amulet that was found in a Roman military camp in Austria. And it's written in Greek. So it was in one of the sources I was looking at. Um, And it's inscribed, this amulet is inscribed with the story of the goddess Artemis dismissing Antaura, the migraine demon. Um, So if you wear this amulet, you have the power of Artemis to stop you from getting a migraine. That is wonderful. There's... There, uh, there's another thing, there are womb amulets, uh, W-O-M-B, womb amulets, very common, and they show what the Greeks and Romans thought a womb was shaped like, like a, a cup, a, a rounded cup, upside down, and underneath it is often a key with seven prongs that looks like a Greek or Roman key, not our kind of key, and it was often on bloodstone, this amulet. I think they were, t- they often had like nonsense or or inscriptions on them often nonsense sometimes meaning something i think they were to lock the baby in the womb and keep it keep it there and of course that reminds us that the whole greco-roman concept of the womb was like an animal that moves around inside the woman can you imagine the idea the men thinking that all women had this live this creature living inside them that moves around the wandering womb it had to be controlled. And, and if women didn't get pregnant, they, they, they were in danger of going mad. It's just bonkers, isn't it? That is good news, actually, Caroline, that you just brought that up because I have a relevant omen. Yay. <gasps> yes. Um, <laughs> it's to do with um, the birthing of unusual things. If a woman gives birth to a lion, what will happen? <laughs> Uh, she'll she'll say uh, I I swear it was a one-off thing. <laughs> I was out of town. Yeah, I was at the zoo. Um, will she die? Yeah, I, I think she'll die. I think I'd die if I gave birth to a lion. It's it's a lot more catastrophic than than an individual death. Uh, in fact, if a woman gives birth to a lion, the city in which she lives will be seized and its king will be put in fetters. Oh gosh, harsh. Yeah. yeah, that's pretty bad. I'm trying to get. To, I'm trying to understand the link between. Like, I kind of understand a snake falling between between a man and a woman. <laughs> that is like a div- divisory thing. But I'm trying to work out how giving birth to a lion would cause your mm. city but to be seized. It's interesting that you bring up the kind of the logic of these omens because sometimes there's an obvious link, um, sort of call it etymological, between the thing that happens or the sign that is seen and some sort of outcome. And sometimes it's just like. They're inverses, almost. Um, there's there's some sort of logic, but this one, I guess, it's like it's almost like apocalyptically catastrophic, right? Like to give birth to a lion should not really happen. I think it would signal the end of end of days. What's really interesting about that though is that apparently Cicero might have been aware of some form of this omen, Ooh. because he has a text. I don't know very much about it, so I might need you guys to back me up. But apparently, in uh, De uh, Divinatione. Um, okay yeah he writes about omens yes he writes about omens and the omen is here translated into a slightly different form and he says if a woman dreams that she gives birth to a lion her country will be overcome by foreign nations oh 
I mean, that makes more sense because I am wondering with the first one, how often did women give birth to lions? I was just wondering if it's like if a woman gives birth to a lion, it's almost like a like a when pigs might fly sort of thing where you say, oh, that would never happen. Pigs might fly. But I guess a lot of cities got taken over and and their kings humiliated in the ancient Near East, didn't they? So that didn't necessarily require a woman giving birth to a lion for that to happen. Maybe there was a reversal and they sent out a party looking for the lion baby every time it happened. Um, But it's funny, these kind of ideas of um, women coupling with different animals or sort of giving birth to different like creatures, that happens quite a lot in um, in stories that tend to be kind of made up after the fact in order to promote um, a man's power, especially when it comes to, um, I'm straying slightly into your territory here, um, Alexander the Great. So his mum was supposed to have slept with a whole load of snakes and that's supposed to have given him a certain amount of divine power and he's also supposed to be descended from Hercules. But the same thing happens with two of his generals who then take over different parts of his kingdoms. There's um, Ptolemy and there's also Seleucus and they both kind of create for themselves these stories where their mothers um, have slept with different animals, supposedly, and um, and they also kind of have symbols, animal symbols associated with them. Uh, and they, this becomes quite a, a, a powerful propaganda tool, both as a way to, uh, as a nod to Alexander and his origin story, um, and, and as a way to like legitimise their own rule as his successors. Um, but I wonder if I could bring it back to that amazing Mama Lucian, um, Caroline, and th- this mask. So you talked about like the the way the light lands on the mask. And I've always, we talked in our music episodes about pantomime and the pantomimus dancer, um, who had to act out all of these different myths from Greek and Roman uh, myths and legends. And But he would only have had presumably one mask for that. So do you think he would have played with with light in terms of trying to get the this one mask to portray different characters? Yes, and I also, in one of my books, I think The Beggar of Volubilis, where I talk about, about pantomime, I, I imagined that there might be masks that have a face, face, they're asymmetrical. So if you just turn one side, it has one expression. And if you turn the other side, it has another expression. And that one I showed you a minute ago that we can post is asymmetrical. It's not um, balanced. The fact that it doesn't have many features means you can project your own emotions onto it. You know, we can project quite a lot onto these faces, which can make them even more scary, I think, if they're if they're being used as a more Malukian, as an apotropaic thing. And the other just the other thing is that often these um, the bronze sculptures from ancient Rome and Greece. And if you think of the famous one of Augustus that was found in Nubia, that's in room 70 of the British Museum with the paste um, eyes. They used to have the eyes there and the eyes look so real. Uh, and again, it's like it's like a real when you first come across it, it's like a real person looking at you, which would be quite scary. That's really cool. I'm just imagining now someone going up to like a statue of a god with those kinds of eyes and thinking they can communicate with the god. Bronze, if we've we see it all kind of ruined and corroded, but bronze when it's new and polished looks like a man with a beautiful tan. You know, it's just come out of the baths. He's all shiny and glossy and tanned, and and then these eyes which stare at you, eyelashes. They do little eyelashes, and imagine then he's wearing a toga or something with that which has perfume, and he's maybe lit in a certain way. So, and he'd be slightly larger than life. So it'd be a really powerful experience to come into a space with these statues there's a beautiful bronze statue of hadrian and i'm now just imagining (laughs) 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 
Should we do some more like curses and amulets and stuff? Has anyone got any? Any more like spells or? Uh, I've got witches. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you could definitely be cursed by a witch. Um, but I've also got more omens. What was their you? definition of a witch? Like what, what made someone a witch? I think the way that you define a witch is, is just someone who is bewitching, who's attempting to use magic against somebody else. Um, I think witches are is a modern word that we have for a specific category of person. Um, but this this is like the whole kind of cluster of like, you know, sorceress or bewitcher or like just a, a sort of a negative human entity. Um, but yeah, I mean, if you thought you'd been bewitched, there's a whole um, there's a whole series of texts about it. Surprise, surprise, called Maklu, which is how you get rid of witchcraft. Um, in this case, the the sort of the, the incantations are about deceitful women um, in particular. So I think there is that common with uh, that sort of complex of witches that we understand um, now and, and throughout European history. But one interesting thing that a witch is said to do is to cause your god um, and goddess to be estranged from you, um, which is the sort of thing that would essentially bring you bad luck. Um, so without any proof, perhaps, of being cursed or being bewitched, somebody who was experiencing a hard time might perceive that they had been bewitched and, and essentially blame it on a witch. Um, it's sort of like an absolution of any responsibility for your own actions, I think. Yeah, and it's interesting again that idea of um, what you were saying, Bonnie, about kind of the if you if something if your life's just going terribly wrong, you think you've been cursed. I think I mentioned earlier that one of the other things you can do with um, verses from Homer is just use it as a kind of general catch-all. If anyone's cursed me, curse them back, or don't let them curse me in future. So there's this real again that sense of sort of reciprocity and like, or I guess the opposite of reciprocity, like don't let it be reciprocated. Um, that you know you're just kind of constantly defending against curses which may or may not have happened and that reminds me of julius caesar's last words et tu or as he really said kai su in greek but it both means the same thing it means and you and it's like reflecting back so he's not like saying oh are you joining them too brutus Blah. it's like back at you punk you know the <laughs> same back at you and i've written a whole blog about that but there's a, um, a famous um, Kaupona, a uh, snack bar in Pompeii, that has uh, a phoenix fresco on it. And it says, Phoenix Felix et tu, which means the phoenix is lucky and you. And it's a kind of a lucky slogan welcoming you into this place, which has this apotropaic fresco. So is a safe place for you to have your um, chickpea pancake or your spiced wine. <laughs> that sounds lovely <laughs> oh here's another one they had a bike shed I think at the University of Newcastle or something and they had this sign that thieves will be prosecuted and people kept stealing bikes and then they put up this big sign of two eyes two giant eyes and underneath it said we're watching you and the thefts went right down really <laughs> wow since you've brought up bikes as a method of, of locomotion I could perhaps give you an omen about a donkey Yay! <laughs> I love that link. Aesop <laughs> would love it. Aesop would say yes. Um, okay, good. Well, here's to Aesop then. Um, if a donkey eats a man's shoe, what do you think will happen? <laughs> um, he will become poor. Okay, poorness. What was the what was the other one? I only heard poorness there. Uh, he, he'll lose his legs. Lose, okay, he'll, lose his legs is interesting. He'll go on a journey. Oh, that's really good. Okay, so if a donkey eats a man's shoe, he will inhabit a city, not his own. Oh. Not entirely sure what the logic is there, um, but Caroline seems to have determined that there's some sort of movement and relocation involved. 
I know in Bible times that when you transacted an agreement, you took off your sandal and handed it to the guy who you just made the agreement with. When I make a contract with the bowling alley, they take my shoes as well. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I have a spell that can turn you invisible. Oh, cool. So if you want to turn invisible um, or if you want to turn someone else invisible, you take some fat or or an eye two very different things take some fat or an eye of a long-eared owl and a scarab's dung ball and some sage oil i think we mentioned sage earlier rub them down to form a smooth paste smear it all over your body or the body of the person you want to turn invisible and say to helios the sun god i adjure you by the great name and then a series of words borke and that goes on for some time and that's how you turn invisible <laughs> Shall we do favourite things? Caroline, what was your favourite thing you've learned today? My favourite thing was because I'm so into these masks, I loved um, that Barney confirmed that there's some nice little clay masks from Mesopotamia, some of them with entrails on them. So bonus. Barney, I'm going to point over to you. What was your favourite thing today? Hey, I'm going to try not to steal what I think might be someone else's and say that my favourite thing was... um, Caroline's phoenix charm. I like that. The phoenix is lucky, and mm-hmm. you too. Um, Meg, what was your what was your favourite thing you learnt today? Um, I really liked uh, the penis charms, the the tiny penises as apotropaic objects. I thought that was fascinating um, to use the correct term there. Uh, but I also really enjoyed every single one of Barney's omens. But I can't claim that as all of them my favourite fact. <laughs> <laughs> and and Zenia, what was your favourite thing you learnt today? I was so glad no one else said this because the invisibility spell was my absolute favourite thing. That was pretty cool. I mean, I, I was going to go for the, um, the the penises, but more pertinent for me uh, was the uh, migraine demon. What was her name, Antara? Yeah, Antara, related yeah. to Abizu, who may or may not be the same demon. I'm gonna I'm gonna find I'm gonna seek out a pendant. I think to to ward off Antara. I think you should. Well. Touch wood, um, but I think that was a fantastic episode for superstitions. Well, thank you for letting me play because that's one of my favorite topics, as you know. And I just see apotropaic things everywhere now. That every time I look at something, I see apotropaic things. So thanks for letting me play. Thank you for listening to another episode of Against the Law. If you can't get enough and are keen for extra content, don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Against Law and we're on TikTok too. And if you enjoyed this episode, please support us on Patreon. We have different support tiers depending on how much you can spare each month, and each one comes with a special reward to say thank you. We'd love to hear from you, so please reach out to us with questions or comments on Twitter or email podcast at gmail.com.